Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. People are mimicking, trying to be like these popular, famous figures uh, because they are convinced that if they can do it, clearly there's a reason why it works. So if I can adopt those principles, those systems, those strategies, somehow it'll work for me. And then they get caught up with what I call is the self-help hell loop, where it's just an ongoing, endless amount of investment from a financial, mental, emotional place. They're chasing the idea of peak performance. They're chasing the idea of peace, chasing the idea of, of satisfaction, success, whatever labels we want to give on it. And they are all, they're constantly basically reaffirming the wealth of those at the top. They keep paying into regurgitated concepts regurgitated uh, principles, people repackaging the same types of stuff they've been selling for the last 20 years. And everybody thinks it's just really good to hear it again. And they don't like the fact that they have to do something difficult, which is facing yourself so that you can access your potential. You can accelerate your performance. You can experience more growth and success for who you are. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Wiley, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. My brother, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. As I was saying before we hit record, uh, there are a couple of things that made me say yes, all of which we will get into. But I think one of my favorite things on your about pages, you've probably never heard of me and it's designed that way. And I was like, yeah, these are the people I like to find the ones that nobody has mm-hmm. ever heard of. Um, but before we get into everything that you do, I wanted to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what oh. impact did that end up having on where you ended up going with your life and what you ended up doing with your career? Ooh, I love that. That's a great curveball. Let me swing and see if I can hit it out of the park here. Um, <laughs> a little baseball pun there, but uh, I never found myself in high school uh, being accepted to any specific social group, despite the fact that maybe I was, you know, I was perusing, you know, figuring out where it was that I might have fit. I found that I was always kind of the oddball, the uh, the one that was basically passed along to different social groups. Now, I I played sports. I was a competitive baseball player and I also played football in high school. So I was part of that world 
or that group of athletes. But at the same time, sometimes I would hang out and play uh, hacky sack with the skaters, go skating. I do BMX stuff with all the bikers. Uh, other times I would just uh, geek out with the, uh, the school nerds, you know. So I found myself just exploring more about uh, different groups of people rather than trying to fit into one specific group. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where does that come from? Like that uh, sort of ability to be a chameleon? Cause like I noticed in, in a lot of cases in high schools, you have this sort of hierarchy, right? Jocks and, yeah, and cheerleaders at do. the top, but you're kind of, you know, like navigating between all of them while simultaneously also being an athlete. Right. Uh, I think as I got older, I started to understand more of what, what was causing me to be more of that chameleon was the nature of the fact that, um, I, I just, my presence, my essence of who I am, what I came to this world with and what's based on even the work that I do now today, uh, just, uh, is not a f- for very specific hierarchies. Um, I, I, I cause people to face force them to look at things they don't want to look at. Kids in my school were always telling me that they always felt weird around me and that they didn't want to like expose, uh, some of their secrets to me. They never really felt like I was one of them. So I think that was just the fact that I was born into this world a little bit different and, um, you know, I had to discover what that meant through those experiences, those social experiments and those uh, different types of environments that uh, our school, like high school, you know, puts us in. Yeah. Well, tell me about uh, playing baseball, because I, it, yeah. there's a common thread I feel like I've seen between sort of high performers uh, across the show. And I unfortunately was just not very athletic, even though I became a surfer and snowboarder later in life, nice. which are both athletic pursuits. Yeah. But, you know, like if you grow up in Texas and, and you know, you play football, as I learned in seventh grade, it's like, OK, I'm going to get the shit beat out of me as a scrawny Indian <laughs> kid. Band director was like, you can either be an awesome musician or an average football player. I was like, I don't want to be average as shit. So that was it for me. Right. And, you know, in the Texas heat, you know, it's just like miserable. But it is the there's something about high school athletes like consistently across the board. I've seen this with enough people that I wonder what it is about people who play high school sports that translates into exceptional performance later in life. Like I can tell mm-hmm. you guests right off the top of my head who are mm-hmm. who've been here. James Clear, yeah. baseball yep. player, and he attributes a lot of the way he thinks about things to playing baseball. Right. Um, and a really traumatic injury where he got hit in the face with a baseball bat. Uh, yep. Chase Jarvis almost mm-hmm. became a professional soccer player. Tim Ferriss said his high school wrestling coach was one of the people who had this tremendous influence. And he said everybody on that team went on to do amazing things. So what is it about high school sports in general? And then, you know, for parents listening who have, you know, an athletically inept child like me, um, what do you say to them? Because like, I, I regret not playing high school sports at the same time. I was like, I, never felt that I had anything to offer. I was in marching band, which is more of an athletic pursuit than most people realize, especially yeah, it is. with a tuba. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, first of all, I mean, I think we, we put too much emphasis or stock into sports as the only real benchmark for uh high performance, you know, and I get it. I, it's a great question to ask. I want to go to even what you said about band. Uh, it takes tremendous amount of discipline, uh, organization, focus, uh, commitment to be in a band, to play an instrument, to be excellent at a skill or a, or a talent, uh, no matter what field you're in, does require a certain type of human approach to it. And I would say you've excelled in that, which has allowed you to be successful in what you're doing now. Now, going back to your question with sports, you know, I grew up in a athletic household. My dad was a semi-pro ball player in the 70s. Uh, you know, had, you know, he threw away a professional baseball career because there wasn't enough money. Uh, he has some other endeavors like surfing, et cetera. 
uh, that pulled away from it. But I grew up around pro baseball players my entire life. Guys like Rod Drew, I met Mickey Mantle, I, Bo Jackson. They were always around me. And I think being in that environment, regardless of how unique and weird I was and not fitting into very specific social, social circles as a young kid, it was still putting me in the position to learn about focus, about discipline, about mindset, understanding what it means to be in a consistent state of performance where uh, it's a relentless pursuit of how you can tap into your own potential. Uh, leadership, I learned at a very young age, being a pitcher on a baseball team, uh, was I, I was responsible for the cohesiveness of the team itself. And everything that I did had an effect on everybody else's ability to actually perform as this one full cohesive unit. So I would say that as you get into high school, that's where these stakes kind of change, where you're really starting to show up, where people are watching you, people are paying attention to you. This is where scouts will start to come in for college ball, et cetera. And it's forcing those with the talent and the skills to really step up their ability to commit, sacrifice, maybe pleasures, going to parties, you know, uh, outings with friends, et cetera, to really train and hone in their skills. And I think that's what ends up diverting people from one path to the other when it comes to high school sports um, and finding what really works for them and where their talents actually do thrive. Well, I got to ask you, one of the the things in your bio, like I said, the thing that got uh-huh. me was that you were a bull rider. And <laughs> I was like, wait, I don't know anybody who uh, becomes a bull rider. I was like, how do you even get yeah. into that? Is Well, let's start there. Like how in the world did you end up being a competitive bull rider? Because like, I think my only like experience of it is watching it on Friday Night Lights. Oh, I'd say, well, there you go. <laughs> I'd say for me, I, I grew up with, uh, you know, my parents, uh, dad was more of the rock and roll surfer kind of guy. My mom, I tapped a little bit more into the, I would say country blues side of things. Um, so I think I, I had an inkling towards more of that rough stock Western side of life, but I never really discovered it until I met someone in high school who was a cowboy. His family were ranchers and, uh, Kind of like the, I kind of dug the whole vibe, the cowboy hat, et cetera. So I decided to just pursue it. I think it was 16 years old when I kind of dug into that world and found the seductive draw into the world of rodeo, very enticing to me. And, and simultaneously, brother, it's, um, it's interesting because at that moment, it was when I was really starting to discern the difference between performing as a baseball player for the love of the game versus, you know, doing it for the expectation of my father and the athletes that I was being trained by. Um, and it started to force me into a place of making decisions in a very uncomfortable environment on what I wanted to pursue for myself to make me a better Wiley. So bull riding became seductive and I decided, let's give it a shot. And I, I went out to a place in Lake Elsinore, California. I got on the back of my first bull. I rode about two and a half seconds. Uh, he, he slipped in the mud, landed on my leg and, you know, and he stared at me for a brief second. It was almost like that stare woke me up to a whole new world of what it means to expand your, your ability to embrace the unknowns, fear, et cetera. And I fell in love with it and I pursued it for half a decade. So I think that yeah, to, to my point earlier, like for most uh-huh. of us, like the only exposure to something like rodeo is probably seeing it through television or through popular culture or, yeah. and how it's depicted there. Um, what do we not see? Like, what are the aspects of this that we don't see? Because I mean, I'd imagine it's like an incredibly athletic pursuit that requires a tremendous amount of discipline and focus, as you alluded to earlier. Um, so talk to me about that and also like what parts of what you learned from playing baseball translated. The understanding of, that's a good one, understanding of the fundamentals of leadership, focus, mindset, discipline, sacrifice, and commitment 
uh, I was able to parlay that into the world of rodeo. But rodeo, I think it almost like extrapolated and compounded on that and added more to the world of what human performance meant um, outside of systematic approaches to athletics. And in baseball, uh, I was able to structurally create this version of myself that could go out on the mound and pitch at certain speeds, be effective in, in striking batters out, leading a team, winning games. But in rodeo, it forced me into a world of understanding what intuition was, how to manage my emotions in chaotic environments. I think when you get on the back of a 2000 pound animal, there's a lot that can happen despite how much you prepare for it really brought me to the presence of mind of, of knowing what it meant to be fully present each moment that I got on the back of an animal and knowing that I was connecting to this life form that could in fact kill me at any moment if it wanted to really honed in my ability to be present with my emotions, my mindset, my thoughts, my intuition, my faith. Everything simultaneously became almost like an ignited firework that blew up every single time that I was able to get down on the back of an animal like that. And I started to pay attention to the differences when I was distracted or I wasn't fully present and how I would get thrown off, bounced off the ground, maybe a chased hurt versus the times that I was actually able to hone tap into those areas of my life simultaneously for that eight second ride and cover that bowl. So it brought forth a new, exciting version of me that I've been dying to meet as a baseball player that I didn't feel like I was really tapping into. And I think that's what I found from bull riding was it scared me so well in such a good good place that I was able to find untapped potential within me in those little brief moments of uh, basically riding bulls. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Wow! Nice! Yeah! 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. The way you're describing that sounds the way that I describe surfing to people, like riding mm-hmm. a wave. Like I got the, you know, the yeah. same idea. Like I honestly felt that I didn't even know what it meant to be present until I, I surfed. Like until I stood up on a wave for the first time and I was like, this is what presence feels like. Right. Right. That's um, it's a special feeling. Yeah. Absolutely well, special feeling. So explain the the logistics behind how Rodeo works. I realize this is like a very stupid question or, or a very basic yes. question, but like what goes into the training for this uh, to prepare for it? And like, how do like, how do you win at Rodeo? Like what exactly <laughs> are the mechanics for all of this? Because like I said, I mean, I just watch it on TV and it's like, oh, okay, cool. It looks like a bunch of people are cheering somebody on and some guy's trying not to fall off a bull. But like, I don't understand the the actual competitive aspect. Like, How does it work? Oh, that's I, that's a fantastic uh, approach to looking at rodeo outside of just seeing it on TV is just getting into it. I didn't know what I was doing. I just hung around a bunch of cowboys. I bought myself some really cheap gear, a rope, some spurs, chaps, you know, bag, the rosin, which is the sticky rock that you break up and you heat up your rope with helps your hands stay engaged with that rope when you're being tossed around. But as you get into that world and you start becoming more competitive with it, there are so many different facets of training that we can go through we have barrels that are tied to ropes in the trees where you have guys that are pulling on the ropes that are they're simulating a a bull ride so they can throw you around so you can learn how to actually sit on the back of that animal and ride that animal properly it's just like baseball or any other sport when you start studying different types of rough stock these companies raise these bulls to buck a very certain way so when you start studying it going okay these bulls tend to do it this way when they come out of the gate when you open the gate this is their their demeanor their attitude how they move around underneath the cowboy, you start learning how to adapt yourself on the back of that animal in the midst of that ride. Even though it might last eight seconds, it tends to feel like it's lasting an eternity. And what I've discovered in the world of rodeo is learning how to sit down on the back of the animal when the animal is uh, on its way down to the front legs, when the back legs are kicked in the air versus posting up on it, which means you squeeze your legs together and you kind of sit up off the animal when it's jumping and you start leaning a little bit, almost like, you're uh, preemptively lean towards the direction you think that animal is going to go. You're, you're finding a balance while on the back of a chaotic beast. And I think that's where we start to really build skill and the approach to the competitive aspect of it is then when you start becoming a good bull rider or bareback rider or saddle bronc rider or roper, 
is that now you start going to events, small events, all the way up to large events. You start putting money into that. You start investing time, energy, and resources towards maybe potentially uh, becoming a pro or a semi-pro. And it becomes where you are essentially competing against the skill sets of other cowboys riding a different levels of animals that have their own unique personalities that can, in fact, make up for half the score in the sport. You're riding and the skill sets you showcase in front of the judges makes up the other half. So it becomes a really fun almost like wild, rough, uh, competitive sport that is exciting. Uh, it's adventurous, it's dangerous, and uh, very fulfilling regardless of, of how much money you might win. Yeah. What are the dynamics of the relationship between the rider and the bull? Like, is it mm-hmm. you just show up at a different town and it's like a bull you've never seen? Like, how does that work? Like, because, it, it, you know, just from what I've understood about people who ride horses, like there's yeah. a relationship that exists between the person and the horse. Ah. I think when you, I started doing little small jackpots all over California, uh, even when I was in the military in Kentucky, Tennessee area, um, you start kind of look ahead and find out, okay, who's putting on the show? Uh, what rough stock company is going to be bringing their, their rough, their animals, their livestock to, to the show itself. So you start to know, okay, uh, grounding uh, brothers company is bringing this set of, uh, stock to this small jackpot rodeo. You had bulls named White Widow, bulls named, you know, Twister, et cetera. Okay, these are how the bulls have performed in the past. If you can find video, great. If not, you hear from other cowboys. Hey, when they when he comes out of the gate, he tends to blow out to the left. He'll lean his head to the right, and but he'll trick you and go back to the left again. He'll start spinning this way. Okay, great. So now I understand what I might be in for, but you never let your guard down because sometimes those animals can change direction. They are bred to buck cowboys off of them. And what ends up happening is when you get down to the back of that confined chute, you have your rope that is being prepared, tied around almost like their their chest area. They have a flank strap that's tied around more of their groin area, kind of squeezes them. It gives them a little bit of that extra oomph to make them buck harder. Um, the animal knows you're there. He's very present with you. You slide down to the back of that, that beast. It'll look Sometimes they'll look back at you. They'll lean against your legs to intimidate you. They'll, they'll sometimes want to get out of the chute before it's even open. It'll almost scare you, throw you backwards. I've had moments where... Um, I had the bull kind of like buck forward and almost put put my face into the, the fence post. Um, you got guys trying to help you kind of stabilize the animal until you open up the gate. And you just really learn how to actually connect with the bull when you're on the back of it. But you're also staying very focused on on what your you know skill set is, what you're here to do, uh, what your determination is all about. And then you just allow that to become settled. So when you call your gate, as they say, which means just open up the chute. It's a ride for a life. And sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. Well, let's talk uh, a bit about the the time in the military. And you know, the reason I'm asking about each one of these components, I feel like they all have a, a role that they, they play in the work that you do today. Sure. Um, so, you know, like I've talked to a lot of military people here, but, you know, Chris Fossil here, I've had other mm-hmm. you know, Navy SEALs. And even uh, when I went to Montana, one of our, our listeners uh, ran a, a nonprofit where you train retired special forces guys uh mm-hmm. how to transition into civilian careers he's like hey will you come and speak to the guys he's like we'll buy your books um and pay for your flight but we can't you know pay your fee i was like that's fine i'll just have one other request <laughs> he was like what's that i was like i saw you're in close proximity to a ski resort he's like you want a lift ticket he's like, yeah. he's like we'll make that happen so <laughs> nice one of the one of the guys who picked, the guy who picked me up from the airport was uh on in joint special operations and i had asked him i said you know like i wanted to know something i was like and I, I did not i was like i don't mean this offensively i've just never gotten to talk to a high-ranking military official I was like 
why do we spend so much money on defense? Like, you know, when we have all these other problems at home. And he said, you got to understand, he's like, people in the military are following orders from politicians. He's like, everything we do is for political risk or political gain. So what I want to hear, hear your take on that, considering, you know, like how much money we put into this effectively policing the world when we have a shit ton of problems in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the other is, you know, just the, 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 like being in combat um, and dealing with that, because like, uh, every person I've ever asked was like, aren't you afraid of dying? Like the entire time, like it just seems you're putting yourself in these really harrowing situations uh, constantly. And so I, I want to hear your perspective on this. Like, what did it teach you about leadership, um, like camaraderie, discipline, all of those things? Like, and, and that I think will make a perfect segue into the work that you do today. Of course. Uh, I'll start with even with the combat question. It's now in combat arms, um, not everybody that serves in combat arms actually sees uh, any kind of amount of combat. They might be in, in war zones and sometimes they, they get to operate and sometimes they don't. So there's a very small percentage of guys that are in serving in combat arms, MOSs, from infantry, infantry to rangers, special operations like uh, Navy SEALs, special forces, which are the Green Berets. Um, Fortunately and unfortunately, I had my own experiences. I did get to see a little bit of uh, some combat in my three tours overseas. But I will tell you this. Number one, when we join the military, we, we do it because there's, there's this unique desire to be challenged, to join a brotherhood, to join a team, to serve something greater than ourselves. Most of the guys, if not, I would say all the guys that I served with uh, in the 101st Airborne Division with the, the 187 Infantry Regiment, uh, Every single one of us, we're all bought into the same mission. So when you go across the broad of military service members, no matter what branch, they will all tell you, at least when I was in, I don't know about now, and everything is going, going to shit now in the military, but there are still people that say we're bought into a mission of serving something greater than ourselves. We don't fight because we hate what's in front of us. We actually fight because we love what's behind us. Now, we do operate under the orders of officers and the president of the United States. There are things that we unfortunately, just cannot um, debate. It becomes autocratic at times, even though in the smaller units, we can be more democratic based on different type of operational orders, mission sets, et cetera. So for me, when I I went to my first deployment uh, and experienced kind of a, a hostile environment, I found it's like eerily, you become calm in the midst of those chaotic moments because in your training, what they put us through, which is in fact, similar to the, the work that I do is, Stripping us down, they're they're basically breaking us down as human beings. They are exhausting us. They're they're relentlessly putting us through uncomfortable, chaotic experiences that are outside of our control, so that they can actually rebuild us up from within. And that way, we can when we experience that in real life, we know how to operate instantly when it comes to the missions that are set forth for us. So, for an example, is like going to basic training for 22 weeks uh, in the army and then having gone to your specialty school after that, you are basically stretched, pushed, and challenged to your literal cerebral limits, your mental, emotional, even your spiritual limits day in, day out until to the point where then they start actually executing on real combat type training so that it becomes muscle memory. It's integrated into who you are. You actually become the soldier rather than just a soldiering is a job. So when they put us in harm's way, we don't think about the first thing is I could die. Yes, it's there. Our purpose and focus is 
operational. We have a mission. We have a, a reason we're here and we're going to execute it and we're going to do everything in the best of our ability to do so, so that our brothers to the left and right of us, they get to come home. We never think about myself and how I'm going to make sure that I make it through this. That's why you hear stories about these unbelievable heroes, these other real life, um, amazing human beings that will jump on hand grenades to save their teammates. They will take in the line of fire to go rescue, pull someone out of a, out of a situation, a hairy situation. They will carry their buddies despite being wounded because it's such a relentless. It's like integration of commitment to something more than what you are. That is what makes, I think, the military in the United States so special. And it is why we invest so much money in it as well as because we have established ourselves as the rule to freedom. And I, again, we can go into a different direction with, you know, what's happening now, but just based on what we've gone through over the years, the, the decades, the generations is that we need to maintain that. How do we maintain that if we're not willing to invest in it, despite what might be going on here? And I think the problem is that we have lost our grip on what leadership really means. And I, I'm using air quotes and I was, you know, I was on Andy Stump's cleared hot. We were doing air quotes with leadership as well, talking about what is leadership now compared to what it was then. And now it's selfish desires. It's uh, political ambition. It's people's desire to make more money. They're, they're doing whatever they can to benefit themselves. And they're willing to sacrifice us and put us in these certain positions to, to achieve those ends. And um, the last part that I, I think I can share here with you, brother, is I remember going to Afghanistan right after September 11th, and we barely got into country. And there was this whole Tora Bora situation. Uh, and our our lieutenant colonel of our our battalion, he was a bat, what we call a badge hunter. He was the kind of guy that was all about himself. He wanted a, he wanted the combat patch. He wanted the CIB, which is a combat infantryman's badge. It's our our award that we get for being actively involved in ground combat against an enemy of the United States. Um, he wanted those things and he wanted them so badly that we hadn't have, had been in country three weeks and we didn't even have our entire unit with us. And yet he wanted to send us on a uh, operation where intelligence was saying, Hey, you're going to lose 30 to 40% of your men if you send them in right now. And he says, I'm willing to take that risk. He so was so hell bent on achieving something for himself because he would get, you know, that would help him in his ambition to be promoted to, you know, full bird colonel that he was willing to risk the lives of his men. And our, of course, we had a great command sergeant major who fought him tooth and nail and said, no, we're not doing that until we get all a full force here. But that's the kind of stuff that I think there are, those are oddballs that are in the military. And the rest of us are like, look, we're willing to do whatever it takes to serve our nation. And for those that we love, despite it being politically driven, despite the fact that we're obeying orders, but despite the fact there might be some geopolitical reasoning of why we're going into these different nations for uh, more than just fighting for freedom. And, um, you know, I'd still do it to this day, even in my mid forties, I'm happy. I'm just thinking about like, if they called me back again and I had to, I mean, I wouldn't want to, but I would definitely do it because I understand what it is I'm fighting for. So this will actually make a, a perfect segue into the, you know, talking about the work you do around performance acceleration. So I remember asking Chris Fussell, was like, what distinguishes the person who gets through the SEAL training for, for the one who doesn't? And he told me, he said, if I had the answer to that question, I'd be a billionaire. Because <laughs> um, he said it's often the people that you don't yeah. think. He said like yes. you'll have the guy who's like you know high school football player like you know huge, and he quits on day one, and he's like some yeah. scrawny like nerdy guy is the one who makes it through. Yep. So tell it's, me about what is the the difference between those two? Because I think that that actually will set us up nicely to talk about sure. the work you do today. Um, it, it's interesting because I have a buddy of mine who's twenty six year uh, SEAL uh, vet. He was a sniper, and he said the same thing. It's usually the guys that are 
the average build, the, they're just, it's, you know what it is? It's a, a, a focus differentiation and it's a mindset, uh, gap. I think the guys that are already built, they're the college athletes. They have a little bit too much ego and not enough humility. And I think humility, as he, him and I were talking about it, humility really does make a huge difference when you're going through these types of extreme trainings and, you know, buds, uh, being the hardest, I would say the hardest military training in the world. Uh, doesn't negate the fact that other uh, combat arms and jobs like uh, combat infantry in the army to special forces, rangers, the pararescue in the air force, all of the people that are in the combat arms go through their own rigorous training that does in fact have an attrition rate. We got guys in the army that I, I watch people dropping out of boot camp, couldn't even make it through infantry boot camp. And it's like, it's because we are basically weeding out people who are Self selfish and not selfless people that are too ego driven or too big for the britches and they don't want to sacrifice surrender or uh give into the humility that it takes to become a unit a team member and uh it's it's the me 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 mindset so we weed those people out through our relentless training so that we only have the best now some slipped into cracks yes but going back to buds it's like talking to my seal buddies it's um the same thing they're like dude the guys that are the hard chargers are the ones that have, they're humble. They are just focused. They're team players. They are, um, quiet. They're the ones that actually just stay focused on u- unit cohesion and teamwork. They don't care about themselves. They are not the biggest. They're not the hardest. They're not even sometimes the smartest. They're just these men that are humble focused guys that want to be part of something bigger than themselves. And that's why I think they make it through that hard training. Uh, I think that's how it parlays even into the world, no matter what position you're in right now. We have leaders in, in politics, celebrities, pro athletes um, that are, in fact, very selfish. The world has become very self-centered. It's become very me, 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 I, 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 uh, focus on the self. And people have lost touch with faith. They've lost touch with something greater than themselves. And then we are trying to popcorn the, the people that actually are still focused on what we just talked about, which is that selflessness, we're trying to put them into these leadership positions to combat the dysfunction that has plagued uh, people at the top. And that's what I, I, I see relentlessly as the problem, especially from the industries of personal development all the way to politics, you know, et cetera. Well, I'm so glad that you brought up uh, how that relates to personal development in particular, because the, the sense I got from just reading about you and, and the, the research that I did and, and kind of all of it was that you were not the rah, 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 I'm going to make you feel good person, which is exactly why I wanted to talk to you because it sounded to me, it's like, this is a guy who doesn't like fill your head with feel good fluff or it, it, it's no. like no bullshit personal development. Like I, cause I remember I had a mentor who rode my ass. Like he was really hard on me. It was funny because yeah. he spoke at it. We, we held an event and everybody was like, oh, it must be so inspiring to like work with him every week. I was like, fucking kidding me i'm like like literally every week i hate talking to this guy i'm granted like i realized what he was doing is he kept preparing me for higher and higher stake situations as hard as he was on me now 10 years later i'm like i get it um so talk to me about how the combination of bull riding baseball and the military have shaped your perspective on all of this and then we'll start talking about like the framework that you have developed and then kind of how it relates to people. Because I feel like personal development is like ripe with survivorship bias um, because we uh-huh. basically use outliers or role, as role models and think, all right, if yep. Elon, Elon sleeps, you know, two hours a week, I'm going to sleep two hours a week and become Elon. Uh, like, no, you're not. He's fucking brilliant. And you're yeah. and chances are you're probably not. 
as brilliant <laughs> as he is. Like, we don't want to admit uh, that, you know? So let's we'll start I, there. There's a lot, there's a lot I, of places we can go here. There are so many way, directions we can go with what you just said, because my, my biggest, I have beef with the whole self-help personal development debacle, because I, I think it keeps people in this never ending quest for conceptualized ideals rather than people actually getting to where they say they want to go. And I feel people are mimicking and trying to be like these popular famous figures uh, because they are convinced that if they can do it, clearly there's a reason why it works. So if I can adopt those principles, those systems, those strategies, somehow it'll work for me. And then they, they get caught up with what I call is the self-help hell loop where it's just an ongoing endless amount of investment from a financial, mental, emotional place. They're chasing the idea of peak performance. They're chasing the idea of peace, chasing the idea of, of satisfaction, success, whatever labels we want to give on it. And they are all, they're constantly basically reaffirming the wealth of those at the top. They keep paying into regurgitated concepts, regurgitated uh, principles, people repackaging the same types of stuff they've been selling for the last 20 years. And everybody thinks it's just really good to hear it again. And they are, they don't like the fact that they have to do something difficult, which is facing yourself. Like you just talked about with your mentor, your mentor was relentless with you. Didn't give a crap about whether you liked him or not. Didn't care about whether or not you appreciated or even valued the, what he was putting through. He just knew he needed to put you in positions and places that he felt were appropriate for you based on who you are so that you can access your potential. You can accelerate your performance. You can experience more growth and success for who you are, not based on copying or mimicking someone else. So I, I, I just wanted to throw that there because you brought that up. But I'll, go, I'll go back into it. it. It's It really comes down to the fact that my life experiences were just, I think my life experiences were my biggest mentors. To me, I never found myself following someone to learn about how to make a, make a business or to learn what self-mastery is. doesn't mean I didn't read certain types of books or maybe have conversations with therapists or different high-level psychologists or go to different events just to kind of talk to people, the leaders, to ask questions, understand why people are caught up in like going to seminars and masterminds relentlessly. You know, when does it end? When do you guys actually take what you've learned the last 10 years and actually apply it the right way? Do you even know what it means to apply what these people are teaching you? Or does it just actually satiate the dopamine in your, in your, in your brain so that you feel high for the moment and then you just keep buying that drug? And as I got out of the military, I wanted to know who I was, who I was capable of becoming without stress, without pain, without any kind of, I would call, I call them demons within me and outside of me? How do I face the world now that I've done all of these life experiences and go out and do something great to serve my community even more? And I feel like what I realized is those life experiences, I'm not even going to say I feel like it. I know it for a fact. Those life experiences were my mentors. They were just experiences. I actually really enjoyed military. I really enjoyed going to war. It sounds crazy, but it wasn't because of you know getting to gunfights or, or experiencing death. It was the camaraderie and the chaos, learning how to really operate in the most, I would say, stressful of environments that any human being can be in. It was the ultimate competition that I found myself really enjoying. So I didn't necessarily deal with PTSD when I got out, but I understood the stresses you can carry from those environments, the things that can influence your performance, it can affect your, your focus, your clarity of mind, your ability to be creative. I would use your term, unmistakably creative, uh, when you know who you are without the demons that plague you. So I go look back now and realize I built my business around a gift. 
a skill that I was brought into this world with that I carry and possess my entire life. Going back to what you asked earlier in the conversation, brother, was I never fit in because I was never meant to fit in. I was always the guy that exposed people's flaws, their blind spots, their dysfunctions. Everywhere I go, I erupt that. That's how my business has operated for the last 14 years is I've always been behind the scenes. I built it around the idea of focusing on getting in, optimizing, unfucking, accelerating, slaying demons and getting out of the way of these people so they can go out into the world and have the biggest impact and influence on the masses. It is not up to me to do that. My job is to get in and get out. So it, it, it's wrapped around the, the notion that I built the business around who I am, the fact that I live my life in a way that other people should be aspiring to themselves based on what they want for themselves. I, it's a matter of facing yourself, facing the demons that plague you, battling them head on, being willing to be stretched, pushed and, ch- pushed and challenged outside of your control, not allowing yourself to try to, um, control or direct your resources, but being fully vulnerable and surrendering into someone who actually cares about kicking your ass the right way, making you experience the the true eruptions of your stress and realizing that that is what it's going to take to truly apply the concepts and the information and all the different things you've learned over your life to really make it actualized in your experience to become a successful version of yourself. And it is sad for me because I watched leaders. I've been behind the scenes for 14 years. I'm going to tell you right now, the people that are at the top leading others, selling to others, if you would see what is really going on behind the curtains in their lives, you wouldn't spend another dime with these people. <laughs> that's why I mean that. And I mean that in a very loving way, but that's why I get calls the way I get calls from publicists, from other PR people. I always am introduced there. Hey, will you sit down and talk to so-and-so? Yes, I'll happily do that. Uh, they go, look, my, my wife hates me. My children don't respect me. I'm losing money constantly. Uh, and then they go out on stages and they try to sell the world on how to have a great life and follow me and look what I've got going. That's why I, I tell people, don't follow me. I don't need a following. I don't want people to look at me. It's all about the fact that I get in. I can make sure that you actually know what it means to hit your maximum creative potential so you can experience sustainable income, sustainable performance, experience better relationship, better health. That is who I am and what I do for these powerful people, but I'll never expose who they are because I would tank their empires by telling telling the world, look at your favorite person and how their lives are not what they say they are when they're selling you their garbage. And at the end of the day, this is where I think we're having a very serious problem in our world. The world is burning because we have people that are not willing to look at their own shit. They're not willing to battle their own demons. (laughs) But they're going to go out in the world. They're going to sell you another book. They're going to sell you another program. They're going to sell you another. It's like, why aren't we experiencing more people rising to the level of Tony Robbins? What more could he teach people after 46 years? But everybody keeps buying into that because it's a status. It's a feel good thing. And it's an idea. It's conceptualized. But people don't want to do the real work, which is facing yourself and having someone relentlessly push you quickly through the ringer so you can get to where you say you want to go and then turn around simultaneously, your impact and influence only exacerbates positively the people that you're here to change. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, yeah, now I know I wanted to have you as a guest. I had a feeling that you would do you would speak my language. Uh, I want to bring back a clip from uh, a conversation I had with this mentor uh, and, yeah. you know, kind of look at this through your lens. So take a listen. Sure. They were born in a way that they are just going to win no matter what. And so those people are not good models to follow. For the rest of us, what we should be doing is we should be creating a safe environment in which we can be as vulnerable as we need to be to not only hold on to the possible, 
but to actually increase our chances of the probable. Mm -hmm. And we don't create those environments for ourselves. As a society, as a government, as businesses, as a culture in America, we tend not to create vulnerable environments that allow us to be safe enough, to be exposed enough, to actually increase our probabilities. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we, one, Look at all these examples of people that don't need that. And we try to live like them. Yeah. And then we fail. And then we experience unnecessary suffering. And then two, we hold on. We, we can't find the safe places to explore our vulnerabilities and our flaws and the fact that it's not probable for us to be like them. So yes. that is one of those clips that I come back to over and over again, because I think that you know, to your point earlier, right? The personal development world in my mind is notorious for selling us on the possible without taking into account the probable. And, you know, as, as a part of that conversation, I remember him saying, he was like, you know, he's like, could you and I make it to the Olympics? Is that possible? Yeah. He's like, is it probable? Unlikely. He's like, I was, you know, and he was like, I was yeah. like, well, we could do curling. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, and like, you know, for example, I'll give the example that I've come back to hundreds of times, right? Let's say I hired you to coach me and I told you, Wiley, you know what? I want to go to the NBA. You know what? I'm a scrawny fucking Indian. There's literally nothing <laughs> that is going to get me to the NBA. You could put me through LeBron's workout routine. You could have me train yeah, with exactly. LeBron. And guess what? I am never playing NBA basketball. So, uh, you know, so the questions come from that. Like, so the, the question that comes from that is like, how much of what your clients are able to accomplish as a result of you know, some of what Greg is talking about, like what they are inherently born with um, and the fact that they are them. Because I asked Ryan Holiday this question once about his clients, mm -hmm. like who are superstar authors. And he was like, dude, I'm not the fucking alchemist. You know, he was like, these people probably would have sold millions <laughs> of books without me. They just sold millions more. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Because if you look at his clients, it's like Tim Ferriss, Robert Greene, Tucker Max is like, OK, well, yeah. you know, there's a selection bias when you look yep. at it. Um, yep. So talk to me about that, because, you know, to your point, like, I feel like there's this vicious, you know, cycle of personal development. It sounds to me like your model is not one of dependency. It's like, ideally, you want to be done with somebody. You don't want them to be a client for life. No. Uh, number one, great clip, because uh, he says, and I'm going to go start with this. He says, creating a safe space that allows us to be, it's almost like unconditionally vulnerable in a way that we typically are not comfortable becoming. Human beings are really weird when it comes to allowing themselves to be fully seen. You want to talk about stripping down naked. Number one, that's why the privacy and the confidentiality that I adhered to at all costs for the types of clientele that I work with. I have foregone interviews with Rolling Stone and other people because I will not give them the names of the people I've worked with to quote, give credibility to where credibility is apparently due. I think that's the other problem in our world is everybody's so hyper-exposed. Nobody feels the uniqueness of being a mystery. They think it's almost dangerous when you are not someone willing to name drop for the sake of them feeling good about whether or not they should work with you, connect with you or hire you, et cetera. And I've found that to be a challenge, but I like the challenge in itself anyway, because it really does matter with the nature of the efficacy of my work. Number two, um, these are people who are high achievers. They are the, again, the celebrities, the pro athletes, CEOs, the entrepreneur. It doesn't matter what their industry or, or title is. I work with anybody who is in a position who says, look, I've done everything that I possibly can to know thyself, to optimize my life, to really experience peace 
and satisfaction with my success, but I am burned out. I'm fried. I'm still suffering in silence. I, I go home at night and I don't know why something still feels like it's missing. I have worked with Tony. I've worked with Brendan. I've worked with all these guys. I've done all of this. I've spent millions of dollars on personal development. I've gone to the limits. I've worked with Jocko Willinks and all the other kind of guys. I've done all these really cool things. What is still going on? Those are the people that call me and say, you know what? I need someone who actually can get into the trenches, the nuanced areas of my life that I am not even aware of that are afflicting me and my ability to actually experience balance, peace, satisfaction with what it is that I'm able to create and accumulate. Now, people think money, notoriety, and fame are success. They think those are the standard or bearers of what it means to be a someone important. And at the end of the day, I say no, they're not. They're just byproducts of your accumulation capacity, your ability to achieve something. Who you are actually influences or fuels your capacity. It changes based on your ability to be vulnerable, going back to that safe space. I love that clip because people then try to define what safe means to them. If it is uncomfortable, if it is ugly, if it doesn't sound like everybody else, if it comes across as different, it must be a threat to me. So I must push it away. I must just lean into where everybody else is going because that feels right. That seems good. That sounds appropriate. So I'm going to avoid the thing that really does rattle my soul because I don't know if that's going to hurt me or not, even though maybe my friend introduced me to that person or I heard them on a podcast where I I saw them in the news. That human element of fear kicks in and goes, whoa, I got to stay away from that. And I say, those are your demons basically talking to you making you feel incorrectly, making you think inappropriately, and you are often missing out on great opportunities to truly transform your life from the inside out, whereas you're going to spend the next 10, 23 years going to therapy, hiring another coach, always feeling like you're just chasing that, that space that you truly feel you should belong in and should be in. And that's why unconditional vulnerability is required for you to truly experience real acceleration in who you are. It's where all the different areas of your life actually can be tapped into to truly optimize your focus, your, your, your clarity of mind, your intuition, your ability to be more connected in your faith, your spirituality, all aspects of the human experience can be fully optimized if you're willing to be unconditionally vulnerable, naked, stripped down, where you let go of control. And here's what my life's experience with is I've worked and been around people that are at the top of their game, who refused to surrender control of their resources. They like to hire, a lot of powerful people like to hire those they can control, the yes men. They like to make it seem like they're hiring the coach, the guru that you know makes them better. But the reality is, if you look at the relationship dynamic between them, that coach, that guru allows their client to dictate what it is that they're going to do, where they're going to go. It doesn't happen with me. If you want to know what it means to be truly your best, you want to know what you're fully capable of, we're going to go into places you didn't even think you needed to go because I guarantee your lack of being able to make that extra million, 10 million, billion, whatever it is, it's not coming from your lack of systems or your lack of approach or lack of organizing your schedule. It's probably coming from a dynamic in your life that you are afraid to look at or you have not addressed or that your other coaches are just unwilling to actually go to. And that's the difference in being real. It's real vulnerability versus what's a manufactured vulnerability that's sold to people in the personal development space. I do not like the word self-help because nobody, not one human being on this planet has ever accomplished, achieved, or succeeded by themselves, all dependent on themselves. 
And I hate hearing self-help because it's like, you you didn't do that shit by yourself. You had someone in your corner constantly doing something with and for you, often needing to carry you a certain level. But we like to sell it. We like to write the books. We like to, to write our websites and say, I went into the deep work. I went into the, you know, was swimming in the oceans and the meditations. And nobody really wants to tell the truth. I'm like, I had somebody literally make me go into dark places that I didn't want to go because they're afraid of how the people will look at them. Say, oh, you had to do all that kind of stuff. So why should I buy from you? Realize, not realizing, you know what? Maybe that actually would be more authentic if people knew I'm willing to do really hard work to better myself so I could help better you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so many things that come to mind as you're, you're saying that. Um, you know, the other thing I, I, you know, I wonder about, you know, you mentioned mm-hmm. the vulnerability, the, the part of that clip that I think also really stood out to me was probability, right? I brought up the LeBron mm-hmm. James example earlier. Yes. Yes. And I think that what I find consistently is that the personal development industry as a whole is sort of notorious for selling us on false hopes and yes. unrealistic dreams and goals, which causes people right. to do stupid shit like sit around and make a vision board <laughs> and stare at it thinking, yeah, that, you know, I'm going to basically manifest all this shit. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, I'm like, this is, you know, like, like I always like affirmations become mental masturbation at a certain point. Like I, I remember like yes. the conclusion I draw from all I work with Greg, I came out into like one simple short essay was that, you know, what you want to hear feels good. What you need to hear is better. Um, mm. Even though it may not feel good in the moment. And it hurts. Yeah. It really will hurt. But how else are you going to shake something to the core to actually bring it to the surface? You've got to actually be, you have to get offended. I mean, you got to see the, it's like, I, I have zero problems saying, doing, et cetera, to whatever, whoever wants it, because I know what is, what's going to happen when they are willing to. And that's why it's like getting into the trenches and being by their side as like basically their battle buddy going through it is part of even the work that I do too, is like I live with and travel with them 24 seven. They've got access to me. I'm right by their side as we're going through every aspect of where their life is not being optimized so they can experience that acceleration. And then when we're done, we're done. I'm out of your way. There's no more for you to try to tap into after that. We get to a point where you actually end up going, okay, this is where I really wanted to be. This is who I really was supposed to to, to tap into. I'm finding that a lot of people that are doing these careers are doing them based on family dynamics, what they were expected to do, what they thought was cool. A lot of the clients I work with go, you know what? I never really wanted to be doing this for 30 years. My creative side wanted to be doing this over here. And it's like, nobody ever actually forced me, shoved my nose in my proverbial shit so I can see what it is that has kept me from actually doing what would make me happy. And that's where I think we have a lot of people in positions of power and influence that are unfortunately falsifying what it means to be successful. Like you just said, the probability, it's like not everybody is supposed to be a millionaire, but Mm -hmm. everybody's striving to be a millionaire. Why? (laughs) Why do you feel like you should be a millionaire? And that's why we see these cringeworthy TikTok and, you know, YouTube videos where everybody thinks that they're just, you know, a superstar because they can go viral for one video. It's like not everyone is meant to be a Jeff Bezos. Not everyone is meant to be an Elon Musk. Not everyone is meant to be you. So at the end of the day, the probability aspect is not being talked about. It's just possibility. Sell them on the possibility. Guess what that does? It keeps those at the top rich and it really fulfills their desire to make their bottom line grow. Because they know people will just keep buying into their stuff. And here's what I've seen working. I have a unique ability to know, to know these truths because I've been behind the scenes with a lot of these people. I've seen inner workings of some of the biggest people in personal development is they, some of them are laughing at people going, look at these people just giving us their money hand over fist, raking in millions of dollars in online launches, 
you know, product launches, you know, courses, et cetera. It's like, just buy that next course, just buy the next book. Just keep buying my next program. Come to my next seminar. Come to my mastermind year in and year out. Keep spending 25 grand a year. You're going to get something new next time. And it's just never ending, relentless bombardment of promise after promise. And then the other thing is a lot of people, I love the, I love the approach is you have to apply to work with me. I'm an elite coach. You have to apply. They're going to accept you. That's just a tactic. It's a selling <laughs> tactic. We're going to, you know why? Cause they want your damn money. And at the end of the day, it's like, if you're not out in the world doing stuff because you truly care about transforming those human beings and getting them the support they need and you're actually in it truly for the money, they're going to sell you on the concept of helping you while they're focused on their bottom line. That's why how many coaches out there, if you ever heard people go, I hired him, he didn't give me anything, but I asked for my money back and they told me, sorry, I get paid for my time. It's like, well, why? Why did you keep that money if you didn't give that person the result? To me, Mm -hmm. that's unacceptable. And that's why it's like part of the dynamic of working with these people that I have is the money they invest to have me in their life is reutilized in the dynamic as part of the transformational process. Money is not the end goal for me. The leader having the biggest influence that helps humanity is the end goal for me. And I will sacrifice and go through whatever I need to, to make sure that those people who want to know what it means to experience abundant peace, satisfaction in their lives with their successes is accomplished at all costs. The probability of you experiencing peace is 100% if you're willing to do the hard work, not the work that seems hard on the surface, but in fact is just another you know, lollipop that they, they hand you to, to satiate you or uh, pacify you so that you can um, you know, keep spending your money with them. I, I appreciate this so much. Like you're, you're speaking my language. Like I, I actually did, I've alluded to this before. I started writing a book titled Everybody is Full of Shit, Including Me. Um, that was about <laughs> nice. the role of cognitive bias in personal yeah. development. Because like I realized this at a certain point when I was talking to one of our, our former listeners, our, our former guests, uh, who had done some work with me and I'd been giving her all this like productivity shit. And I was like, wait a minute. And one of my, my like friends called me and he's like, you don't know your audience. I was like, what do you mean? I don't know mm-hmm. my audience. And then mm-hmm. I realized like, I was like, I'm giving you all this life hack productivity bullshit from the perspective of a single guy. You're a mom with two infants. So I was like, Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this mm-hmm. is nonsensical advice. Like you mm-hmm. basically couldn't follow the Tim Ferriss playbook. And now that I have a 10 month old nephew, I've seen firsthand how unrealistic that is for right. a parent. Um, right. But you know, I, I think that you, you brought up that this is a sort of, you know, darker side of things. But one thing that, you know, I can't tell you the number of people who have come to the show who talk about the fact that, you know, money isn't going to give you all the things that you think it will. And I guarantee you, like, Probably 80% of our listeners are like, yeah, that's easy to say when you have the money, right? Like Uh somebody is thinking that somebody is thinking, I guarantee you. And Sunil Gupta and I talked about this recently. He called it, you know, the arrival fallacy where we have this idea that we're going to achieve this goal and it's going to fill some sort of void void that we're feeling. And you actually alluded to it at the beginning of our conversation when you talked about, you know, why you were playing baseball and this sort of like need to meet the expectations of other people. I grew up in Indian, in the Indian culture. That's very, very pervasive, yes. pervasive in the culture yes, that I grew is. up in is this like need to be validated by your parents. And like, there's part right. of me that still feels that. And I remember like I was walking through Central Park with Jonathan Fields and I remember turning and I was like, man, now my parents maybe won't think I'm just fucking around on the internet now that I got a book deal. <laughs> and the irony of that was that it didn't make a damn bit of difference. Right. From right. their perspective or mine, like I'm still right. the idiot who f- refuses to put the cap on the toothpaste to my mom. Like, it's right. like, so what? You published a book. 
which yeah. honestly is a good thing. Now, in retrospect, I realize that because that's just your ego at work. Um, wow. But talk to me about that whole, like, why are we so caught up in the arrival fallacy, even though we know it, we hear it, and yet we relentlessly pursue this, like, you know, I've made it moment. Because I remember John Lee Dumas asked this question on the show, have you ever had an I've made it moment? And I told him, I was like, John, the minute you think you've had an I've made it moment, that's when you're done. Yeah, we got, why are we focused on a, I made it? What is, it's almost like life is not, you know what the end goal is, was when you, you is when you die and you go make, meet your maker. You know, I think that's where we, we really experience a transformation in our lives. But I think the idea that this I made it moment is what people are getting caught up in. It's they're too focused on what the future might be rather than being present in the moment of what, what's going on in their lives and trying to maximize the day that they're actually experiencing. We're too busy projecting what we want. Everybody, you know, again, you read these books, you see these pod, you listen to these podcasts, see these shows that constantly talk about plan for the future, prepare for the future. So I think we are, as this unique, weird species, you know, like we are constantly almost like screwing ourselves by convincing ourselves, well, we need to plan for the future, but we need to be present. But we need to try to mimic and copy everybody else. But at the same time, we got to be unique and individual. So it's like weirdly, it's almost like misconstrued and perverted where people are, they don't know what to do or how to do it. So what do we, what do we end up doing in that moment? We end, end up trying to look to other people and see how they've done it. And we go, oh, let me just follow their steps. Let me just copy and paste what they did. And I think that goes back to when we're kids, we're, you know, we're babies zero to six. I think that's our mimicking stage where we're, we're watching the world around us, our parents, and we're mimicking the environment so we can learn about the environment. But I don't think we've evolved as far as we think we have when it comes to that whole mimicking aspect where we, I call it copy and paste method where, you know, you go into these fields of help, helping others where you just follow rote steps and systems because hopefully that will take you to the place where you feel satisfied, but then you never feel satisfied. So you keep following that same kind of protocol. And then you look back in your life and you get pissed off and you're irritated. You go, why 20 years later, am I not happy? Am I unfulfilled? Do I still have this void inside? And we keep chasing something that can fulfill, which is, I think, where then addictions are born when people have addictions to different things. It can be good stuff, bad stuff, whatever, is we're constantly trying to figure out those tools that can satiate this space within us because we are so, I think we've come too secular. I think we, we depend on too much of the self, too much of the ego, and we are overwhelming ourselves and we are beating ourselves up. We're almost doing our parents' job for us. You know, it's almost like, you just said about your parents that I wrote a book and they didn't care. It's the same thing. It's like my dad wanted me to be a baseball player when I became a, a, a quote entrepreneur and did this work. It doesn't matter if I had a high six figure year or a low seven figure year. None of that mattered. Nobody cared because it was what they thought I should have been. So why am I worried about that when I've experienced every day, no matter how much money I make, no matter where I go or who I work with, I get to wake up and experience satisfaction with who I am. I have peace in my life. I get to go out into the world and kind of do what it is that fulfills me. Even though I'm human, and I might have human experiences and emotions. I know how to manage them. I know how to utilize them as an asset rather than them affecting or inflicting my life and making me succumb to the lower denomination of society's, you know, conflict energy. I feel that that is the biggest problem is people are too trapped in this idea that they, they are a never ending work in progress. And until they actually are able to do what really matters, which is looking at themselves and going, you know what, what about my life? What about who I've become? Where have I not gone 
done, looked at, that still needs to be addressed, that my therapists, my other coaches, I, that I am not even truly understanding. What is it I need to do to experience those resolutions first? Because I guarantee, in my experience, when you're willing to face those things, the void that you're feeling will be filled on its own naturally with other things outside of yourself. You'll start to realize that money doesn't really make the void go away. That fulfillment within, that peace that you can experience, that does in fact make a void go away. So we're chasing the wrong thing. I think people need to do more work to find peace rather than to make money. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, as, as with regards to the whole book thing, like I even wrote about it in the book, I realized <laughs> I was like, this has nothing to do with my parents. They're actually yeah. perfectly good with this. And I realized yeah. this is all about me and my right. own like, you know, fragile ego about this whole thing. Yeah. And you know, I'm going to go say one thing. You and I popped into my head right now. You brought up your audience. You're like 80% of your audience will say, yeah, that's easy to say when you have the money. I'm over here struggling. It's like right there, right there. That mindset is exactly why you're going to continue to struggle. If you keep looking outward and, and allowing that victim energy, that victim mindset to basically be the dominant um, focus, you're going to keep having that type of attitude rather than listening to someone talk about, you know, again, I, I'm, I was a combat veteran, got in the military. I didn't have money for a long time. Doesn't, how do you get to the place of eventually having a, I did okay for myself over the last 14 years. Why did I, why was I able to, to do okay for myself? Because in the moments of hardship and adversity, in the moments of sleeping in my truck, in the moments of looking for ways to make a little bit of money so I can continue to progress down the road as a man who's who's developing, building, and growing post-military, I allowed myself to find the blessings in the adversity, in the chaos, and in the uncomfortable moments because I knew that nothing is going to change when I do have some success if I can appreciate these moments too. And I think that's where human beings are. They, they think that adversity and hardship is, is negative. It's bad. So they avoid it at all cost. They only want things that actually sound good, feel good, or look like blessing because it doesn't cause any kind of discomfort inside them. I think when we can get people to, to value adversity and moments of, of being broke and being stressed and realize there's so much good that can come from these, these experiences, if you can learn how to change your mindset, you'll find how much quicker you can actually get to the goal of having those blessings like more money, more opportunity, better relationships, your health will improve. If we can get people to appreciate the the hardships and the adversity that we face as human beings, yeah, I mean, I I appreciate that so much because I think that the, the, one of the other sort of common themes that like we've seen is people are addicted to feeling good. They like want to be on yes. cloud nine all the time, which is yep. in my mind, I was like, impossible. It's impossible and it, it's ludicrous. Like you see these, you know, people on Instagram, like you know, who look like uh -huh. they're living the life and like they're basically got these shrines for you know for religions that they know nothing about. Right, yeah. right. And as, an, as an Indian person, I find this yeah. really ridiculous. Like, I'm not offended by it. it. Like, I think it's yeah. amusing. And I'm always just like, okay, this is absolutely insane. Well, wow. I get it. I I mean, I, I, I get it. The people use the cross the same way. There's always like, it's, it's unfortunately, it's like I worked with this, uh, this gal, this uh, A-lister in Hollywood years ago, uh, because someone we, we mutually knew and she was on the surface. Everybody's like, look at her. Oh my gosh, she's growing in her success and becoming this thing. And when we got together and it's like, I had a completely different version of her. I saw oh, your Instagram and all the things you have. This is, this definitely, she goes, I know. She's like, I'm miserable. Uh, the pressures of the limelight, uh, the expectations of all my 
the sponsorships and the studios and everything she had to do were, were literally breaking her soul. She goes, and I've never had anybody really mentor me or show me uh, how to handle and manage this type of success before. I mean, she was pursuing psychedelics on a, on a very, very detrimental basis with a point where I finally pulled her back and she was like this disheveled version of herself going, I don't know where I need to go. I just keep putting on a fake smile for the cameras. And back here in my life, I'm crumbling constantly. And I've had people say, I need to go to rehab. And people tell me that I need to work with these coaches and this therapist because they're celebrity coaches, they're celebrity gurus. And it's like, none of them make me feel good or safe to truly be vulnerable. She's like, so that's why no matter how much you basically put it in my face and you are relentless with me, she goes, I still feel like finally someone I can lean into who doesn't care about the limelight, who doesn't care about the spotlight, stripping away all of this idealized version of what it means to be great and successful, getting down to the nuts and bolts of who I am as a person and allowing me to be completely open so that I can experience what it is that I've actually chased this this success for in the first place, which I wanted, if she thought I, if I become successful, I make millions of dollars uh, doing what I'm doing here, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to fill that void. And she goes, and nothing filled the void. And after we got done doing our work together, she's like, now I understand who I am. And it changed her creative approach to her work. And it allowed her to start actually determining which job she took, which one she didn't have to take. She stopped sacrificing herself for roles. She stopped sacrificing her sanity for you know, people's other needs, et cetera. And she found more balance in her life. And that's, I think the thing that's missing with people is we get wrapped up in, in this notion that uh, something outside of us is going to fulfill that. When the fact is it's within us and we have to be willing to face that version of ourselves that most people are very uncomfortable with. A lot of powerful people are very uncomfortable with it. They don't want to be shown what's really plaguing them. They want things to just seem a certain way. And, and some of them are okay with that. And, but there are people that are listening there are people out there going, I'm not, and I need to find someone. It doesn't matter if it's me, you find someone who will, who will not be a yes man, who can get into the trenches and fight this with you by your side in a way that you've never experienced. Because I'm telling you, you'll, you'll know what it means to find peace if you're willing to be that vulnerable and that real and get into the, to embracing discomfort as a good thing. Wow. Yeah. We, I, we hear that all the time. It's cliche, but yeah, I just wanted to say it again. Well, you know, I feel like I could talk to you all day because this is such a deep sort of rabbit hole of human behavior. I am. Yes, you know, and I like it was funny because I was thinking to myself, I'm like, OK, I appreciate the fact that like this is one of those you know conversations where like I'm going to walk away with this with more questions than answers, which I think is a good sign. Um, because I think that's, you know, people like you said earlier, they want the formula. They want the prescription. I mean, that was like my entire first book was about is like right, the problem with right. the prescription, the formula is there's one variable that throws it off every single time. Look in the mirror. Exactly. And nobody wants to look in the mirror. And then yeah. if they look in the mirror, they tell themselves everything is great. These yeah. leaders, these public figures all go, everything's great. They bullshit themselves. They have created uh, a culture of BS and everybody goes, look how great everything is in the surface in my life. And the reality is they're just miserable behind the scenes. They crumble at the first sign of adversity. Anything that challenges what they have perceived to be good and righteous in their life, it's like if it's out not not something they can control, it crumbles them. And then they it's like they they avoid you. They go away from you. Like get away. And they get into their own little what do they call that? Their own bubble. Their own uh, <laughs> their own vacuum. So it's, anyway, it's it's just unfortunate because. And then it, it, it's sad for me because I see people in positions of power and influence. They're the, the biggest culprits to that. And we've got to we've got to change that paradigm. Yeah. 
Well, um, I have so appreciated having this conversation. This has been one of my favorite interviews all year. Like I, this is like one of the most refreshing conversations I've had in, in such a long time when it comes to all of this stuff. So I want to finish right on, brother. my uh, final question, which is how we finish yes. all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What do I think it is that makes something or someone unmistakable? I think humility and, and, and an ability to truly be who you are no matter, no matter what you face, no matter where you're at, not willing to sacrifice your own standards, your own values, your own morals for the sake of popularity, monetary support, et cetera. I think that's what makes someone very unmistakable is they are uh, unabashedly uh, unafraid to truly be the weirdo and the different one. And they're willing to stand that ground at all costs and they're willing to die on that battlefield. I think that's what makes them unmistakable. Beautiful. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, and everything else? Well, brother, I, I, absolute honor and pleasure to be here with you as well. Uh, WileyMcGraw.com is a website we put together. Uh, after the pandemic started, I, I had no digital presence. So all of that has philosophies, insights, videos. If people want to check out a little bit more about what we just talked about. Uh, I jumped on Twitter as well, at Wiley McGraw. And we're having great conversations with other people like you. And um you know, I started a podcast called Wise Words and Whiskey with Wiley McGraw. We're kind of seeing where that goes to. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator 
that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.